Perhaps you don't know who Chuck Norris is or how he became a pop culture icon, so let me explain all things Chuck Norris to you, okay? Here's a picture of Chuck. Keep that in mind as we talk about Paul showing up at the church in Corinth. Um, He's going to show up like that, but I'll explain what his weapons are. But that's Chuck Norris. He's an actor and martial arts expert. He starred in many action movies in the 80s and then later in the hit TV show Walker, Texas Ranger. But somehow, beginning in the summer of 2005, he became the center of Chuck Norris jokes. His bravery and general tough guy looks and reputation became the focus of these jokes that now have a cult following. So here are a few examples of some classic Chuck Norris jokes. Here you go. Chuck Norris doesn't read jokes. I mean, sorry, sorry. Chuck Norris doesn't read books. He stares them down until he gets the information he wants. If you spell Chuck Norris in Scrabble, you win forever. Chuck Norris can dribble a bowling ball. Chuck Norris counted to infinity twice. (laughs) I think this one's my favorite. Chuck Norris once won a game of Connect Four in three moves. (laughs) Lastly, death once had a near Chuck Norris experience. Those are a sample of the many Chuck Norris jokes that are out there. If you want more, Google is your friend. So what does Chuck Norris have to do with 2 Corinthians? Well, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and I'm going to tell you. Actually, I'm going to let Mr. Norris tell you in his own words. Responding to the Chuck Norris joke that Chuck Norris's tears can actually cure cancer... Chuck Norris said this, There was a man whose tears could cure cancer or any other disease, including the real cause of all diseases, sin. His blood did. His name was Jesus, not Chuck Norris. If your soul needs healing, the prescription you need is not Chuck Norris's tears, it's Jesus' blood. Again, I'm flattered and amazed by the way I've become a fascinating public figure for a whole new generation of young people around the world, but I am not the characters I play, and even the toughest characters I have played could never measure up to the real power in this universe. Obviously, Chuck Norris knows where the real power is. Chuck Norris knows that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Chuck Norris knows that the weapons of our warfare have divine power. Chuck Norris knows that Chuck Norris is no match for the gospel. And the Apostle Paul knew that too. Paul knew and said in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God. And that's exactly what he will remind the Corinthians of in our passage today. So if you haven't yet, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Our big idea today comes from Paul Tripp, who said this. Spiritual warfare isn't a weird and unusual thing. 
It's the normal battle for your heart that wages day after day after day. Spiritual warfare, as we've seen in our study on Sunday evenings, spiritual warfare is not primarily about seeing demons everywhere or having the hair on the back of your neck stand up or casting out demons like in the movie The Exorcist. More often than not, spiritual warfare happens in the very mundane and very ordinary moments of everyday life. Raising kids, going to work, driving through roundabouts with people who still don't know how to drive through roundabouts. That's spiritual warfare, isn't it? And so all of life and all of ministry is spiritual warfare. It's fought on the turf of our own hearts And it has less to do with demons versus angels or having weird experiences where we get freaked out or finding demons behind every broken appliance. And it has more to do with our hearts and with our minds. And so understand this, Grace. Demons are not at the heart of spiritual warfare. Some people make the devil the focus of spiritual warfare. But that's backwards. As David Pallison said, at the center of spiritual warfare is not the devil, it's Jesus Christ. Listen, if you've placed the devil at the center of spiritual warfare, you're doing it wrong. Spiritual warfare is about your heart being recaptured by the gospel, by the good news that God is amazingly good to very bad people. Spiritual warfare is about awe. It's about wonder. It's about being awestruck by Jesus. It's about the battle for your heart and your mind because your heart and your mind is the battlefield. It's about dying to sin, dying to selfishness, and falling in love with Jesus over and over and over again. It's about believing the promises of the gospel over and over and over again. That's spiritual warfare. And that's what Paul is getting at today. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verse 2 and hear the word of the Lord. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. So Paul wants the Corinthians to know that he's planning on a visit. And when he says that he is going to show up and show boldness, this does not negate what we saw last week in verse 1, where Paul said he was appealing to them with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul believes that to be gentle in confrontation, to be gentle in discipline, is to be like Jesus. That's how he plans to show up in Corinth. He will be gentle, but he will also be bold and confident. He will not be a doormat that others walk over, which is exactly what people were saying about Paul. He writes these big weighty letters, but man, when he shows up, he's a wimp. He's a doormat. That's how they took his 
humility and his meekness and his gentleness. This guy's just a doormat. So if those people in the Corinthian church who had sided with the super apostles, that group of false teachers that had invaded the church, if they did not change and break ties with the super apostles, then Paul says, I'm going to show boldness with such confidence when I show up. Now, Paul doesn't want it to come to this, but he will if necessary. He wants the church to respond in repentance. He wants those in the church who have sided with the super apostles, he wants them to break up with him. Just call it off and say, "It's, it's not you, it's me. Now notice that Paul says, I beg of you in verse 2. He doesn't want it to go this route, but he will show boldness against those who are abandoning the gospel. That's why he says in verse 6 that he will deal with them when he shows up. Look down at verse 6 real quick. Paul says, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So Paul is just asking his friends to stand with him and to stand with the gospel against the super apostles. He's saying, if you guys kick the super apostles out and call to repentance those who have sided with them, when I show up, we will deal with anybody else that didn't budge and still sides with the super apostles. So this passage is not so much a passage about doing spiritual warfare a la fighting Satan and fighting demons. This is a passage about church discipline. Think about that. I never hear this verse brought up when people speak about church discipline. But this is a church discipline passage. And it's a passage about addressing false thinking and false theologies and false gospels that creep into a church. And not so much about fighting the devil, which is how it's often quoted, right? Now, yes, there's always demonic influence behind such false teachings, but this passage is primarily about dealing with sin in the church and not so much about putting on the weapons that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 6 and then doing battle against Satan. You always have to read the verses that come before and after a passage. That's hermeneutics 101. That's Bible interpretation 101. Read a few verses before, read a few verses after. You always have to know the context of a passage. And so, read the next verse is a great hermeneutic. A lot of interpretation issues might be solved with, hey buddy, read the next verse. Before you interpret 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, you need to read the next verse. These verses are typically yanked out of context and immediately applied to spiritual warfare and fighting demons. But the context is about Paul showing up in Corinth and with gentleness and meekness and humility, wielding the power of the gospel. It's about Paul gently confronting those who have fallen for the lies of the super apostles. Now, yes, there is a spiritual warfare element to these verses, but not in the way that we normally think. Contextually, Paul is talking about the gospel destroying pride, destroying arrogance, destroying swagger, and destroying works-based righteousness, which was the theology of the super apostles. 
Paul is not necessarily describing us doing spiritual warfare with the devil. And that's how the verse is often quoted. And yes, it is spiritual warfare when we preach the gospel to others and when we preach the gospel to our hearts. That is spiritual warfare. But the context here is talking about destroying the theology of the super apostles, which was works righteousness, which was you can earn your way to God. But notice too in verse 2 that Paul calls those who have sided with the super apostles as some people. Now, Paul knows exactly who these people are because he planted this church. Some of these people could be his friends. He could call them out one by one. He knows their names, but he doesn't do that. And so this verse is very instructive for us and so needed in churches because here's what Paul shows us. Never attack people. Attack principles. Paul shows us that you never attack a person. You attack the principles. You attack the belief system. You attack the wrong thinking that is going on inside a person. And that's something we all need to learn, isn't it? Because what happens when there is misunderstanding or relational strain in a church body? We tend to attack people, don't we? We tend to think ill of others. But what we should be attacking is not the person, but the issue, the misunderstanding, the wrong thinking, the false theology, the false belief system. What is amazing about the Apostle Paul here is that he doesn't even mention these people's names. He could have, and that would have been expected. But Paul never even mentions their name because he knows that this letter is going to be read in front of the whole church. He doesn't want to throw his friends under the bus. How gracious of Paul. How merciful. He never mentions their name even though these people were running around the church mentioning Paul's name and throwing him under the bus. Listen, it takes a depth of maturity and growth to do what Paul does here. It takes a settled rest in the gospel, to not pay someone back, to not go around talking about people. Let me say that again. It takes a depth of maturity and growth to not talk behind someone's back. Christian maturity does not whisper and mumble and grumble behind people's back. The mature Christian goes straight to the person. Something to think about, isn't it? So remember, never attack people. Attack principles, the belief system, what they're thinking. So file that away. You may need to remember that someday. So Paul is going to show up in Corinth ready to deal with their issues. And he is going to be bold. He is going to be confident, even though some think that he's rather wimpy and unimpressive in person. Some people in the Corinthian church were accusing Paul in verse 2 of walking according to the flesh. Now, what does this phrase mean, walking according to the flesh? Well, the word flesh has several meanings in the New Testament. Usually there's two main ones. Number one, it refers to, when you read the word flesh, it refers to our fallen sinful nature, who we are in Adam as sinners. That is our flesh 
but it also refers to our physical bodies, our hair, our fingernails, our kneecaps. And so those are the two most common uses of the word flesh. But here in verse 2, it refers to the opposite of spiritual things. Now, let me explain. The super apostles believed that they were endued with spiritual power. And so they claimed to have all of these visions and they boasted in their spiritual power and their understanding and all of these experiences that they had. But the apostle Paul, according to them, well, he wasn't like that. He was weak, wimpy, feeble, not much to look at. He wasn't that impressive. He was a doormat. And so when Paul says that he is being accused of walking according to the flesh, he means the super apostles view him as a spiritual lightweight. Like, we're up here. We deal with heavenly things. But Paul, he's down there in the flesh. He's down there in just the world. You know, he just down there. We're up here. We have these heavenly visions. This is where it's at. Paul stressed the ordinary means of grace. Prayer, scripture, the sacraments. Unlike these false teachers who stressed seeing visions and boasting about having supernatural experiences and and prizing eloquent preaching. But Paul says, I don't walk according to the flesh, but I do walk in the flesh. What he means by that is, man, I'm just a normal guy. When Paul says that he walks in the flesh, he means that he was just an ordinary man who didn't boast or brag about his spiritual life like the super apostles did. He relied on the Spirit of God. He relied on the Word of God. He relied on the gospel and not on all of these supernatural experiences. And listen, Paul had some supernatural experiences. We're going to read about it later in chapter 12. He was caught up to heaven once. But that experience of being caught up to heaven was not the litmus test for Christian maturity or spiritual influence. And so even though Paul walks in the flesh, he says he does not wage war according to the flesh. Paul's philosophy of ministry was not like the super apostles. The weapons of Paul's warfare were different. The meekness and gentleness of Christ as seen in the gospel message where God declares sinners righteous in his eyes. That was Paul's weapon. Look at verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So Paul shows us that spiritual warfare is primarily about bringing truth to people's minds. Not seeing demons all the time and having weird experiences or performing exorcisms. Spiritual warfare is not primarily about destroying demons per se, But instead, it's about destroying thoughts and opinions that are contrary to the word of God and to the gospel. And so what are the actual weapons of our warfare? Well, you could sum them up in one word. It's the gospel. 
Recall what Paul said earlier in chapter 6 when he described gospel-centered ministry. 2 Corinthians 6-7, Paul says this, By truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. People forget that Paul said this a few verses, a few chapters earlier. So you can't talk about the weapons of our warfare in chapter 10 without talking about the weapons that Paul mentioned earlier in chapter 6. I mean, so many people do that. The weapons that Paul has in mind in both passages is the gospel. And you see that in 2 Corinthians 7 with these words, truthful speech. Well, what is that? In this context, Paul's saying it's the proclamation of the gospel. And you see it with the words in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 6, the power of God. Well, what's that? You know that. It's the gospel. And then he mentions the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. The weapons of what? Righteousness. Paul's main weapon was declaring the free favor of God, the righteousness that cannot be earned through obedience to the law, but is given freely as a gift to sinners. The imputed righteousness of God, the unmerited favor of God are the weapons that Paul had in his right hand and in his left hand that he is taking to Corinth. And so in short, the weapons of our warfare are all the blessings of the gospel. All, uh, the weapons are all that we have because we are in Christ the imputed righteousness of Christ to sinners like us, which is exactly the opposite of the theology of the super apostles. Recall, they preached you could earn your way to God. You could be good enough. You could earn his righteousness, earn his love, earn right standing with the holy God. But Paul preaches that God's righteousness is a gift freely given to sinners and to be received by faith. But then notice Paul says in chapter 10, verse 4, that these weapons have divine power. Now think about what we read earlier in Romans 1.16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, for in it the blank of God is revealed. What's revealed? The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. So Paul's weapons are the meekness and gentleness of Christ as seen in the gospel. That's why Paul's weapons are not of this world, because the world does not value humility. The world does not value weakness. The world does not value meekness. The world values pride and arrogance and swagger and tooting your own horn. Those things puff up, but the gospel humbles and so the meekness, of gentle, the meekness and gentleness of Jesus in the gospel message are the weapons of our warfare. And then what do these gospel-centered weapons do? Paul says, one, they destroy strongholds and arguments and lofty opinions. And two, with them we take thoughts captive to obey Christ. The word destroy in verse 5 is a present tense that implies that this spiritual battle is constant. So verse 5 reminds us that we are always in the fight, always tearing down false thoughts. 
And so the warfare that Paul is talking about here in chapter 10 is he's talking about a moment-by-moment, day-after-day kind of thing. Remember, spiritual warfare isn't a weird and unusual thing. It's the normal battle for your heart that wages day after day after day. As David Pallison said, Scripture treats spiritual warfare as a normal, everyday part of the Christian life, and so we should as well. It's not about spooky special effects. It's about how we think, feel, live, desire, and act in the presence of our enemies. Spiritual warfare is focusing on Jesus and rehearsing the gospel and in the process, constantly destroying strongholds and arguments and opinions and thoughts. It's taking every thought captive that comes into your mind and making it submit to the truth of the gospel, making it submit to the truth of God's word. It's destroying thoughts that, as Paul says in verse 5, have been raised against the knowledge of God. It's these thoughts that come into our heads that are trying to challenge the knowledge of God. Well, what did Paul say earlier about knowledge? 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he said, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So let's read it this way. We're going to stick 2 Corinthians 4, 6 into 2 Corinthians 10, 5. We destroy arguments, And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, which is the glory of God shining forth in the face of Christ, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So Paul's talking about anti-gospel thinking here. Through the gentleness and meekness of Christ, through the power of the gospel, he destroys pride and self-sufficiency and legalism and works-based righteousness and earn your salvation thinking. Humility and gentleness and meekness have power because that is the essence of the gospel, the humility of Jesus in the incarnation, his meekness, his gentle and lowly heart. Think about this. Jesus's meekness and gentleness in the incarnation destroyed the power of the devil. And so in spiritual warfare, we destroy any thought that dares raise itself up against the knowledge of the glory of God in Jesus. And the glory of the gospel is this, that God is good to bad people. He gives us righteousness so that we can have a relationship with him. So that we can come into his presence. Now the super apostles were telling the Corinthians... They had to earn their way into God's presence by obeying the Mosaic law. Their theology was raising itself against the knowledge of God. The super apostles preached Jesus plus something equals everything. And that something was obeying the law in order to earn God's favor. But Paul's message, the weapon in his right hand and in his left hand, was Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Everything. And so Paul would tear down and destroy their opinions raised against his message of Jesus plus nothing equals everything. 
And so the context here is that the weapons of our warfare in both hands is the righteousness of God given freely to undeserving sinners. And Paul is thrusting that weapon deep into the heart of the super apostles' theology. But the application here can spread far and wide for us. We are called to stab not just works-based theology. We're called to stab every impure thought with the gospel. We're called to stab and slit the throat of every evil thought. Pride, swagger, fear, worry, lust, despair. When those thoughts come into our minds, we have to do battle. And the starting place of that battle is not focusing on the devil. The starting place of spiritual warfare is focusing on Jesus. And that's why the most important thought that you will ever think is what you think when you think of God because it will determine every dimension of your life. The most important thought that you will ever think, however long you live on this earth, is what you think when you think of God because that thought will affect every dimension of your life. Whatever you think of God will control every aspect of your life. This is why we're doing our series that starts tonight on the holiness of God. We hope you come back at 6 p.m., and learn that God is holy. You should at least come out and see uh, R.C. Sproul's hairstyle in 1986. It's kinda, he was kind of dabbling in and coming out of like the perm, you know, the permanent movement that kind of hit in the 80s. Everybody was getting a perm in their hair. His hair is kind of wavy and curly. I think he's growing out the perm that he got. Come back if, for that, if nothing else. But you should come back for it. It's really good. And it will teach you about the holiness of God. And then that's also why we're giving out copies of Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. If you didn't pick one up last week, please grab one of these books at the Welcome Center. This one over here, that one over there, they're free. We want to give it to you. This book will help you to see the real Jesus so that when the devil tries to paint a picture of a false Jesus, you will know how to stab that wrong thought and slit its throat. Knowing the real Jesus will empower you to destroy strongholds and to take thoughts captive. So get Dane Ortland's book for free. Speaking of Ortland's, and speaking of taking thoughts captive, let me tell you about another book. It's by Dane's dad, Ray Ortland. Ray Ortland has a new book coming out next month titled, The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility. This book is so good. I got my hands on an early copy, and let me tell you what. Every man and boy in this church should read this book. In this book, Ray is writing letters to sons. I love it. He just throughout each letter, he keeps saying, son. Here's why you don't need to go down that path. Son, here's a better life for you. He's writing as letters, as a loving father to sons and encouraging them to live as the royalty that we are in Christ. This book is just full. It's like, it's full of encouragement. It's like 
glitter, like encouragement glitter. It's just everywhere. You pick this book up and you're encouraged to live for Jesus. This book is a tender father coming alongside you, putting his arm around you and encouraging you and cheering you on to take thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And here's the crazy, it's not just you saying no to porn. Ray Ortland is saying, let's take down the porn industry. Let's wipe it out. We wiped out slavery in America. We can wipe this industry out. And so he's believing and praying for a million men to come together in gospel community and start confessing their sins and fighting lust and fighting an impurity. But here's the great thing about the book. It's not just about lust and thoughts like that. This book will encourage you men to, to rise. It made me want to kick the devil's teeth out. Not just in thoughts of impure thoughts, but to just live my life as a son of God and say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, wallow in despair when I have days where I just have the blahs and don't want to do anything and don't want to live for Christ. It's making me want to say, you know, I want to live for Jesus because I'm his son. I'm royalty and I'm going to fight for good in this world. So men, I encourage you. Wives, buy this for your men and buying it for them, you're not saying, I know you're struggling with this, but just buy it for them and say, honey, Pastor Benji told me to buy this for you. You read it and let him read it and let him be encouraged. Okay, here, let me read a portion of this. Ray says this right at the beginning of the book. Here's what he says. Here's all you need to know about me. I am a Christian pastor. I love my wife. I am not looking at porn. I am a sexual sinner. I wish that last one weren't true, but there's a brothel in the neighborhood of my mind, and I've wandered in there a time or two. It's a big part of why I'm thankful for the grace of Jesus. Never once has a stop off at that fantasy land made my life better. And never once has Jesus refused to take me back and clean me up. What if I told you that every false Jesus we've ever believed in was whispered into our minds by Satan himself? Satan is happy for you to settle for the feel-good Jesus. One so weak in the knees and thin in the wallet that he doesn't even know how to help you get free of porn. Satan is equally happy for you to put up with the feel-bad Jesus who shames you and drives you back to porn for false comfort and real bondage. So get this book and be encouraged to destroy strongholds in your life. Get this book and be encouraged to destroy arguments and opinions raised against the knowledge of God. Get this book and be encouraged to take every thought captive to obey It'll be out next month. Go ahead and pre-order it. If you took your phone out now and pre-ordered it, I wouldn't be offended, okay? So as we close, let me ask you today, what strongholds need to be broken in your life? What arguments, what opinions, what thoughts need to be destroyed and taken captive to obey Jesus? Find a promise in God's word and go to war. Rehearse the gospel and go to war. And then remember, spiritual warfare isn't a a weird and unusual thing. It's the normal battle for your heart that wages day after day after day. This is why we preach the gospel here every single week at Grace. 
Because every single week there are idols in our hearts. There are thoughts and viewpoints and, and belief systems that need to be deconstructed and torn down and destroyed by the gospel. Every single week we all need to hear the gospel anew. As Jared Wilson said, the primary goal of Lord's Day worship is a re-evangelization of the people of God. I like that. So, let me re-evangelize you this morning, okay? And I have a feeling this is something that Paul probably said to the Corinthians when he showed up. What I'm about to say to you, I think this is kind of what Paul would have said when he showed up to them. May it tear down strongholds and arguments and opinions and thoughts that pull you and pull your heart away from Jesus. So you ready to get re-evangelized? Here we go. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You cannot earn God's favor through what you do. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you any more or any less than he does. Jesus can't remember your sins. God rejoices over you with singing. Your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. It is finished. You don't have to do more, try harder, or pedal faster. Jesus paid it all. You can rest in the finished work of Christ. His mercies are new every morning. The Holy Spirit is your helper, and he will strengthen you for the battle. You are free from the performance treadmill. God has already given you an A when you clearly deserved an F. He has already given you a full day's pay, even though you may have only worked for one hour. You don't have to perform certain spiritual disciplines to earn God's approval. Jesus Christ has already done that for you. You are loved and accepted by God through the merit of Jesus, and you are blessed by God through the merit of Jesus. And you have been adopted into his family. And you are loved with an everlasting, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Christian, you are righteous and blameless in God's sight. And when God looks at you, he sees Jesus, and you can start over today, right now, a fresh start today. You haven't drifted too far, and Jesus has not let you go. He's calling you home today. He will not give you up. He can't. What Jesus did on the cross for your sins is too costly for God to just give you up and desert you. So I don't care what kind of week you had, what you did, what you said, what you thought, what you looked at. Right now, if you are in Christ, you are secure and you're safe. You are safe in his open arms. And you are forgiven and you are righteous and you are loved. And the devil can do Nothing about all of that. And neither can Chuck Norris. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the hope and the power of the gospel. Thank you that you're not a, a feel-good Jesus who's 
just so weak. You can't help us with anything. And thank you that you're not a feel-bad Jesus who shuns us and shames us so that we run to other things to find false comfort. Thank you that you're a real Savior for real sinners like us today. Thank you, Lord, that you are present here today and you can help every single one of us with whatever we're struggling with. It might be porn, it might be worry, it might be anxiety, it might be bitterness, whatever it is, Jesus. You're real, you are here, and it thrills your heart to help us. And so we thank you. And we're just gonna collapse into your arms today and say, help us, and we know you will. In Jesus' name, amen.